0: Welcome, everybody, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, Neil Pollack, the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe. This is, the, this is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Age of Aquarius. Aquarius. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. Again, this week, no books. Just film and streaming TV, but boy, do we have some exciting stuff for you today. We're going to talk about new movies. We're going to talk about a show called Schmigadoon that is burning up Apple TV+. Plus. We have a little bit of investigative reporting into the Summer of Soul documentary and so much more. Speaking of Summer of Soul, we're opening with music. From Summer of Soul, it's the Fifth Dimension with Age of Aquarius. Let the sunshine in, which was famous for being in the musical Hair, but was actually kind of a "quote unquote" champagne soul banger back in the day. The Fifth Dimension, Marilyn McCoo, has been reborn thanks to Summer of Soul. So now let's talk about Summer of Soul with Book and Film Globe contributor Lily Moyeri, who is back on the site and back on the podcast. Hello, Lily.
1: Hello, and thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, more importantly, thank you for letting me do this story, because not everybody has the guts to let me do something like this. Yeah, I mean, it
0: seemed kind of natural to me. Like, You do a weekly newsletter, and I I was reading your review of Summer of Soul, and you mentioned sort of offhandedly in it that... Uh, the, the footage in summer of of this Harlem Music Festival from 1969, right? Uh, it's a movie, film directed by Questlove, and the marketing for it said that, you know, we're looking at 50 years. This footage has been lost for 50 years, and that's where I, I've seen that everywhere. And you pointed out the footage, in fact, had not been lost for 50 years, and it had, in fact, been – not only was it televised when it came out, but people have been trying to make this into a movie for almost 20 years.
1: Um, yeah, but, well, for quite a while, since 2006, I would say, maybe even 2005. Um, you know, it wasn't, I just stumbled across that. I, when I was doing my research, when I was putting the inter, the review together, I was looking for the exact dates of the Harlem Culture Festival beca- Cultural Festival because... They weren't actually consecutive, although it makes it sound like they are. Not that that's a big deal, but it happened over like over a span of eight weekends. Six of those weekends is when this was taking place. And I was just looking for those dates. So it was just like a random Google search. And this Smithsonian article from Smithsonian Magazine popped up from February 1st, 2007, which talked extensively about this footage, about how this documentary was in the works. They spoke to the person who had... Discovered the footage and um, to and I don't know if they had actually spoken to the people he was working with, which is Robert Gordon, who is a writer and a documentarian filmmaker, and of course Morgan Neville, who's the Academy Award-winning documentarian, very established at this point. And they were talking about making this movie, and I was like, oh, what? And so when my review came out uh, and I looked up the company, I looked up Historic Films and I was like, oh, this is such an interesting archive of music that was performed on television or that was broadcast on television, not necessarily performed. Um, And uh, after my review came out, I emailed Historic Films and I was like, hey, I wrote this review. And uh, what happened to your movie? (laughs) And Joe Lauro, who's the guy at Historic Films, he's the president of the company who I spoke to for the article I did for us, um, got back to me straight away. And he sent me that comment that he said that the New York Times didn't publish, which uh, I read in its entirety. And I was like, oh, whoa, okay, hang on, because it was a lot of information that I've included in my article for us. And so I said, well, let me I'm like, I'm going to see if I can get your story out. And I was speaking to one of my publications when you reached out to me and I was like, well, this is really exciting is one of my editors actually sounds like he wants me to pursue this, this story. And I'd rather, you know, speak to, or have do it for somebody who's, who really wants to get behind it, which is when I started to go into this whole thing with Joe and, and, and I said, okay, you know, will you talk to me? And he said, Oh yeah, for sure. And I, Talked about the thing with Joe is he's an archivist, so he has everything on paper. It was everything he told me as he was telling me, he would hold up the document that he was talking about.
0: So <laughs> I was like, Oh, if you're, okay, if you're, if you're gonna do investigative journalism, have it be about an archivist
1: or have an archivist on your research team,
0: on your, on your payroll. <laughs> okay. we, should, we should maybe give, uh, give Joe a little retainer. Uh, well, so okay, so you know here's the thing. Like it's a great piece. This isn't like a huge scandal. It's not like no. Love ripped guys off and it's not, you no. know, he made a great movie and they give him lots of credit and, you know, he was the right person to bring this cultural phenomenon to wider attention and all that. And that's all in the article too. It's just that, you know, all you're pointing out is that the marketing wasn't even necessary. Like, it made it sound like the only reason that this didn't get seen is cause because of racism, you know, And it's like, and I'm like, I just it just doesn't I just don't buy into that. I mean, who wouldn't want to see like a lost line, The Family Stone or Stevie Wonder performance or whatever?
1: i I just feel like maybe Hal wasn't the greatest salesperson. Hal is Hal Tolchin is the gentleman who did such amazing filming of the of all six weekends of the Harlem Cultural Festival um his footage is unbelievable as you can see in the film his audio capture was very futuristic forward thinking um which is why this it sounds so good and um i maybe he just wasn't the greatest salesperson at the time Um uh, maybe he really needed to get somebody to rep him to get the stuff out there but he did sell it though he sold it to uh cbs who ran it in so many places in the united states i only saw 15 documented like joe again the archivist he sent me all of these reviews and previews and articles and interviews that were running in publications like uh the chicago tribune and like the detroit free press that were saying hey this thing is going to be airing on tv and uh they, there was interviews with Tony Lawrence, there was extensive previews that put everything in context, that talked about the importance of the festival, that talked about um, just how essential it was to see these, these artists. So it was really, there was a lot of that, and then... That was mainly for the first weekend because Hal Telchen had made four episodes. So one of the episodes was from the first weekend. And then the second weekend was also seen, although not in as many markets, that I can document. I'm going to just qualify that cuz anything that i could document is what i mentioned if i couldn't document it i didn't mention you need
0: it. to go to every city uh newspaper archives and go to the tv um, 1969.
1: guide 1969
0: 1969 you need to do the microfiche work or else you're not complete so anyway but that, so all right. so look so the, the, this piece is is a you know is a mild corrective i mean i wouldn't say we 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 haven't broken some massive scandal but it's nice to see uh, a more complete story to this this, this documentary that has been you know, the talk of maybe not the whole world but certainly like the of the um, the white liberals on my facebook feed seem to love it <laughs> that's who that's who's like that, that's who the the main audience seems to be at this yeah. point for this for for this thing um but uh you know but i'm i'm but that's your piece, which is on and Film Globe now, gives you the full story, and it's it's great background. And you know, I'm so uh, I'm so grateful we were able to uh, to make it happen.
1: And it's also, I mean, it makes me feel good that uh, this stuff wasn't entirely squashed, and it wasn't only seen in New York. And so many people, not just domestically, but across the world, got to see it um, yeah. because they did license well, I- it to abc who put it into their international syndication
0: because yeah again because the marketing for the movie made it sound like because of racism no one saw this and that's just not entirely true
1: yeah i did um joe has two hours two hour plus interview video interview with hal tulchin um that i wasn't able to share but uh i watched the entire two plus hours and it's awesome because Hal just talks like so much detail about how everything came about, where he placed stuff, where he, how these decisions were made, what the thought process was, what it was like uh, interacting with Nina Simone, what it was like interacting with Mahalia Jack. It was just amazing. Like, that was such a bonus for me to be able to just hear it straight from him, what it was all about. And I put some of um, what I learned in the article, but
0: well, okay. you know, there, there was no, there was no quest love in 1969. I don't think maybe he was born, but I, I it, you know, he, was, he wasn't. Who he is now, so, so yeah. now it's out. Summer of Soul is here, and you have helped us tell the full story, and, and thank you for that, Lily Morieri, uh, excellent book and film globe contributor. We will we will be featuring you again soon, and I will talk <laughs> to you
1: soon.
0: Thanks, you. All right, ciao. Pablo Gallaga is here to talk about a new movie. That's not really a new movie. This has been lingering for a couple of years. It was on the festival circuit, uh, and then it was supposed to come out last year. And because nothing came out last year, really, unless it starred Russell Crowe, it's been delayed. But we're talking about The Green Knight, and Pablo, lay claim to this movie. He's really been looking forward to this one.
2: Yeah, thanks, Neil. Yeah, I've been waiting for it. I've been seeing the trailers for some time, as has been the case for... A bunch of films uh, due to the pandemic, but this is one that, you know, if you're a fan of uh, things coming out at A24, uh, you know, this one's not necessarily horror, but that tends to be their wheelhouse, but yeah, if you've seen this trailer, you've been waiting for it and hoping to see it at festivals if possible, and and now it's out. It's out in theaters. So it's kind of an, you do see it at a festival, or
0: were you waiting for it to come to the Alamo Draft House here in Austin?
2: I didn't get to see it in any festivals. There were always rumors that it might uh, hit some of them that I was interested in, but now I, ha- I had to wait for it to release to general
0: public. It's kind of an artsy take on the King Arthur and Camelot cinematic universe, right? I mean, the Green Knight is a, is a, going in the Green Knight is a classic Knights of the Round Table story.
2: Yeah, it's specifically an adaptation of that story with a few additions to it to meet like a two-hour runtime. Uh, if you know, you remember the, the story, it actually kind of glosses over a lot of the adventure and, and journey that happens. So there's a focus on maybe, uh, one or two actual, um, you know, encounters that Gawain has once he's out, uh, after the green Knight. but they, they've added a few things. There's, um, uh, let's see, there's, there's an, a, an encounter with some thieves and scavengers that's not at all in the original story. Um, yeah. And, and also with, the uh, a companion fox and some giants. Like none of that's in the original story. You said a companion fox. Yeah, he has like a little fox that follows him around and is kind of like his spirit guide and shows him where he probably should
0: go. Okay. Uh. So. So for people who who love uh, smart animals in movies, there is it like a CGI fox or do they? It, somebody... It's very CGI. <laughs> they didn't train uh... a fox. Okay.
2: Yeah. It's um. You know not poorly done but you can tell it's it's cgi
0: right okay well and so from your review i have not seen the green knight yet although i do i do plan to from your review it seems like this is a this has got uh this movie has artistic aspirations it's not your sort of typical hollywood genre take on uh, they're not trying to go for something like universals doing with the universal monsters they're not trying to do some kind of extended king arthur take
2: Right. If you know anything about David Lowery, uh, writer director on this, um, you know he he did a ghost story. uh, That's that's very artsy. Uh, He was also the editor on Shane Caruth's Upstream Color, uh, extremely artsy. But yeah, it's the production design on this thing is great. Um, You know Dev Patel gives a great performance. He's you know captivating the whole way through. Uh, It's it's not gonna if you're expecting horror. I, I think the trailer kind of tips that as a possibility I, I don't it, it's got some some gruesome parts but it, it's not really that it, it's it's very uh close to the the source material
3: would you consider
2: it a, an action movie though or is it more more artsy than that more artsy more fantasy uh there's not like big action set pieces or anything like that um you know it, it's it's kind of subdued it's it's a lonely journey it's a character study really
0: all right, a lonely character study—that's not what really what you think of when you think of uh, the uh, the Arthur mythology, right? You, you think of a lot of swords and sorcery, and 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 actually, are, are there any movies you can compare this to? Because most King Arthur movies, you know, go pr- I mean, I lo- like—for instance, I love Excalibur, which which dates me terribly, but most Arthur movies kind of go heavy on the cheese.
2: I've actually never seen Excalibur. I,
0: I, that was a hard R rating, right? It was a kind of over the top. Yeah, I mean I didn't see it when it came out, but over over the years I I caught it. It was it was kind of a standard on on cable and you know on video uh back back in the day. And boy, that I mean it it dates for sure. Right. But it's cool, um, and exciting and, and and it has has a really original vibe to it.
2: You know, I think this one kind of turns the the chivalric rom- uh, romance on its head a bit. You you've got, you know, this guy who's actually kind of portrayed in a in a cowardly way. Um and I mean that's the original story as well, is that he wants he's out to prove himself. But in this case I think it's it's more about, you know, what what happens if you give in to that cowardice, um, you know, what, what that could look like. But then, you know, it's it's about a hero. It's a hero story,
0: uh, eventually. At any point does he fight the knights who say Neat? <laughs> no, no Monty Python references unfortunately. Um but
2: you know, like like you said, some um some of these King Arthur and Camelot stories, like it's all about the camaraderie, and in this case, you, you get a little bit of that at the beginning. Um, but now this this is more about just this this one man on his on his journey and some some weird things that he encounters along the way.
0: All right, well, it sounds like a winner to me. I am going to see it. I'm not kidding either. Like if I'm not going to see something, I won't <laughs> I won't say I'm going to see it. But uh, you know, I, I in general, no matter where we are in a pandemic, I go to the movies. I'm gonna keep going to the movies. They're gonna have to drag my disease-ridden body out of a movie theater at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, this is one to see in the theater. I think uh, you know it's a two-hour runtime, so you know maybe a bit of pacing issues, a little bit if you're not into that sort of uh, that sort of setting, the medieval times, it it might you know kind of be a little slow in some parts for you. But aside from that, I think it's it's interesting. It's uh, it looks great, and um, yeah, it's it's the type of movie that we want back in the theaters.
0: All right, The Green Knight out now in theaters. You can read Pablo's review on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Pablo, we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Neil. Right, thank you. Stephen Garrett is here. As usual, we're going to engage in our little, uh, our little sort of at-the-movies revival segment that we do. We can pretend. Yeah. Yes,
3: uh, I, well, I, I, I'm
0: nothing much. I mean, I'm really more like Jay Sherman than any any actual live action movie critic. I, I resemble him more and more every year from the, <laughs> you know, the critic. You know what I'm talking about.
4: I don't. Who's that guy?
0: Well, Jay Sherman, the a, critic a, from The Critic, played by John Lovitz. You've never seen The Critic? Oh, uh, I don't.
4: A movie,
0: you're a movie critic.
4: He's like your avatar. Is he you my know. avatar, John Lovitz? That's not you know. a bad avatar. John Lovitz did very well for himself, didn't he, after Saturday Night Live?
0: The last thing I saw John Lovitz in, he he was playing a character named Long John Lovitz on the ABC miniature golf show, Holy Moly.
4: (laughs) No, actually, I meant maybe his Hollywood career is whatever it is, but I think he invested his money wisely. He's one of the richer alums of Saturday Night Live that are out there.
0: I, uh, uh, that doesn't surprise me, but yeah, but yeah. he also, he, but he, yes. Yeah, so, so I was like that Long John Lubitsch thing last year. They they were doing that a lot. They were leaning on those '80s Hollywood. They had there was Steve <laughs> Guttenberg as diving judge. But I don't want. But we're not here to talk about holy moly. As much oh, as right. like I could talk about holy moly all day, um. But instead, we're going to talk about a lesser cultural product, the movie Jungle Cruise. Yeah, which yeah. you you submitted yourself to this week. I, I
4: t- <laughs> you know, I, uh, and I didn't mention this enough in the review, if very much at all, but I, uh, I, I've i always liked The Rock. He's he's a very amiable presence. He's, he, you know, he has a good sense of humor about himself, and he's got good uh, on-screen charisma. And uh, Emily Blunt, I feel the same way, you know, and I think the two of them were, you know, doing the best they could with uh, what they were given, and there's just a slight amount of uh magnetism between the two of them uh enough chemistry to make it feel believable that there might be a bit of a romance you know kind of you know a uh uh, african queen humphrey bogart you know catherine hepburn thing maybe second tier but still well Uh, they're very charming and they made it palatable let me put it that way for
0: being as hunky as he is the rock is curiously asexual you know
4: (laughs) i guess he is you know (laughs) that's fair that's
0: fair. Uh but but yeah. So but Jungle Cruise is it's it's an adaptation. Disney does this periodically of one of its Disneyland rides. Uh obviously they've they've been very successful with Pirates of the Caribbean to say the least, but um not as successful as, say the Haunted Mansion, which I hear they're rebooting. And this is a this is a very <laughs> big this is a very big budget uh gambit on their part uh, there it's been advertised very heavily And in fact steven i don't know while i was watching the olympics or some sporting event i saw that if you went to applebee's you could get a free ticket to see jungle cruise
4: oh right. i think i saw that commercial too i was a little perplexed because i i was interested in seeing the commercial and then suddenly i realized it was for food at applebee's and i thought well this is a strange combination but sure why not a little desperate
0: I was thinking, like, all right, if I use my AARP card at Applebee's, I can get 10% off and get a free ticket to Jungle Cruise.
4: Nice. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Making a tiny little profit that night. Yeah, exactly.
0: Cool, <laughs> man. Uh, all right. So but so Jungle Cruise is like this weird pastiche. You know, you pointed this out. There's, like, all these different elements from way better movies. it.
4: Well, and and maybe not way better because the mummy I, I I resaw the mummy recently and uh, was uh, was a little more sympathetic to it and, and thought it was actually kind of fun the, the reboot of it from '99 but um, uh, yeah look I mean you know Raiders of the Lost Ark itself is a pastiche the way the Star Wars is a pastiche right so I don't necessarily want to knock pastiches uh, for being pastiches but uh, this just had no real uh, clever spark to the familiar tropes and uh, situations the way that those movies did. You know, this really did feel slapdashed. You know, let's let's take off-the-shelf characters from this movie and let's do this from that and let's even take The Rock, you know, the jungle version of The Rock from Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. I mean, it literally, it, it might as well be a crossover film because it's, it's more or less the same except for the gender identity switching, which is really the only interesting thing about Jumanji. And this Jungle Cruise is very safely put together it's very busy the way it's directed is very lively uh i can't say it's a bad film outright or that it is poorly made a lot of money and time and attention was poured into making this but it does feel very familiar and kind of dull you know frankly it, it really uh is exhausting and you know like uh, cruella which i was very mixed on although it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, you know, Cruella was almost—I was like two hours and twenty minutes or something. This movie's almost one hundred and thirty minutes, and they just should not be. There's this bloat, and there's this backstory that comes up, and you're just like, God, Lee, why, why are you making this more complicated than it needs to be? This is a—I thought this was a river cruise,
0: <laughs> right? Jungle cruise. Well, well, why, you know? why does jungle cruise have to be yet? Yeah, you know, an hour and 20, two hours and 20 minutes, you know, imagine like those old, old Disney live action movies. Like, I don't know, like the cat who wore tennis shoes or the computer who was a cat. I don't Escape remember the name, you know, those from movies.
4: which mountain I'm sure they're all under like a tight hour, 40 minutes. I haven't seen it, right. but maybe you right. Know? Yeah. right.
0: Escape from which mountain with the rock star and the reboot of that, by the way, why do I know that? That's right. <laughs> what is wrong with me? Um, but yeah, it's like, what's with these bloated properties? I mean, Jungle Cruise at the end of the day is a children's movie. Children,
4: it, it should be, and they've, you know, they've really, you know, uh, uh, ratcheted up the the tension and the and the strange uh, supernatural elements to be, you know, pretty borderline frightening for a certain age, you know. Um, but also the title, it could not be more innocuous, you know. I mean, even. If you were at an amusement park and there was something called Jungle Cruise, you would think, "Wow, that's a generic name for whatever that is." You know, that was, it was um, always.
0: I, did you ever go to Disneyland or Disney World as a kid? I you know, I grew up in Arizona, so for me, Disneyland was a pretty common occurrence and uh, a pretty a relatively short drive for the West. And you know, I, I used to love going on the Jungle Cruise ride.
4: Well, I, and I, uh, I never went to the California, I never went to Disneyland. I, I did go to Disney World kind of you know, when I was in college, so it was already kind of too late for me to really enjoy it without um, any, um, unless, irony. You <laughs> unless you are on drugs. Unless we're on drugs, exactly. But, um, incidentally, I had a friend who we nicknamed Dopey, and we all got ears, those, little, you know, hat ears, and we could put our nicknames, you know, our names sewn in the back, and they refused to put Dopey on his because it was, you know, it was a proprietary name for one of their characters on Disneyland. So they would not actually put that on the on the hat. Are we um, So get, it's a different are experience?
0: We, are we gonna get like a two hour, two and a half hour dopey origin story? Yeah, <laughs>
4: exactly. I hope so. Wouldn't that be great? One for each of the seven dwarves, and then we'd have like seven prequels leading up to Snow White. That would be pretty impressive. Um <laughs> uh, <the>, <laughs> Snow White's exhausting thinking about it. Extended
0: universe. Yeah, it could happen, though. I, 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 I Sneezy, the movie. All right. Um,
4: I, we're all but able, yeah, I, no, I mean, Jungle Cruise, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, you, you mentioned the, the the tour, and I read a bit, or not the tour, but the ride. I, I, I read a little bit online about the ride, and, and clearly, if you're familiar with the ride and some of the characters that are mentioned on the ride or some of the things they do, I think it's like the back the backside of water or something is the eighth one of the world. And they make reference to some of these things. And I guess the tour guide on the jungle cruise always tells bad dad jokes and puns. And that's what uh, the rock does in this as well. So I think if you're familiar with the ride, you love the ride, the movie will respectfully kind of pay homage and have bunches of uh, little Easter eggs for you to enjoy. But um, I have to say as an outsider looking in, You know, uh, dialing, firing up this movie and watching it. There are some nice references to what was happening in 1916, England and the war and Kaiser Wilhelm. And, you know, it it reminded me of almost like this Rudyard Kipling-esque sense of, you know, colonial exoticism, um, which uh, back in the day was enough to spark your imagination. You didn't need uh, superheroes and, you know, crazy gadgets and, you know, something happening in space uh, you know, the world, this point. world was enough of an adventure and it kind of was nice and a fond memory to see a movie that thought, you know what, the, the Amazon is exotic and we should be happy with that, which we should be and we are for the most part. Yeah,
0: your average kid going to see jungle cruise at uh, uh some mall in north carolina is definitely looking for a nice kaiser wilhelm reference
4: <laughs> well maybe they are they just don't know it and you know if this movie opens that door to them then you know god bless jungle cruise for right. doing something at least a little more you know everything old is new again and this old exoticism is at least they're trying to make it feel good so all right it doesn't quite work.
0: the magical world of jungle cruise not so magical stephen garrett Always a pleasure to talk to you. We'll we'll, we'll we'll catch you soon.
4: Absolutely, my pleasure. All right, cheers.
0: You're listening to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I am Neil Pollack, your host, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. And streaming TV includes shows, uh, revivals of shows that you didn't think ever would need a revival, or at least another revival, but... There's been a revival of He-Man. It is back on Netflix. Uh, Kevin Smith, the creator of Clerks and other juvenile uh, indie comedies, uh, is the showrunner, the dork supreme. Uh, uh, G.L. Ford, uh, known to me as Greg Ford, uh, put himself through the He-Man ringer and watched all the episodes and wrote a piece for us. Hello, how are you?
3: Hi, Neil, how's it going?
0: I'm fine. Uh, I'm happy. I've had a great week because I didn't have to watch He-Man. But you did.
3: You you did. It was only five episodes, about half an hour long, so it could have been worse. There are five more to come, and if you want, I can watch those too. But we'll see how things go.
0: I don't know if we're going to need another He-Man piece. We'll we'll see. It has, you know, the show has been, you know, I got a lot of comments when the article came out saying, why are you writing about He-Man? you know, there's so many more important things in the world that, well, that is absolutely true. There are more important things in the world. You know, this has been a very popular and controversial reboot. And maybe you can tell us why.
3: Well, it's been popular because I think it tickles people's nostalgia bone. It's a bunch of Generation Xers who think that it's done a great job of getting the choppy animation right and stilted dialogue. And it's kind of fun to watch. I mean, I was a little old for He-Man back in the day, but uh, I remember it pretty well. And the uh, I don't know, I, I know some guys uh, from back then who are all over it. They love it. Um, but I think the controversy may come from It's really not He Man's story. It ends up being the story of uh, his uh, friend Tila, who happens to be a woman, and her quest to restore magic to the world of Eternia because without it, well, the whole universe will end. And it's. Maybe the revisionism here is a little subtle for these guys who think it's just, oh, great, it's He-Man, or maybe maybe they're just going along with the politics of it, the implicit politics. They're not so overt.
0: Well, so here's the thing, right? There was a reboot in recent years, a five-season reboot of she yes. Princess of Power, that essentially remade it into a young adult uh Series about gender fluidity. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. I mean, I watched a few episodes and I was, I was like, this is not the the corn the she corn Shira Princess of Power that that I remember. And you know, I, I would say that the um, the new series was an improvement in terms of writing and pacing. And the, that old Shira series was super corny and horrible. But you know, it was. It really didn't. It really just completely reinvented it, and it sounds like uh, Kevin Smith took a sort of a more old school approach.
3: He did, on the whole. I mean, he's, you know, he certainly has an affection for the old show, and he's, you know, trying to do by his lights the best he can to do it proper, and, you know, um, I just, for my part, don't really think much of Kevin Smith's lights. Um, oh.
0: Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, when I saw it was Kevin Smith, I'm like, oh, I mean, come on, you know, he's he is he hasn't made. I don't. I mean, some people like Clerks. I can I can I can. I'm sure you can make an argument for Clerks, but
3: I got, I got dragged to see Chasing Amy in the theaters when it came out, and it, I honestly it was the worst movie I've ever seen in the theaters, and I yeah, Kevin Smith is anathema to me since then. Frankly, yeah, I,
0: frankly. I, I also hated Chasing Amy. I'm sorry. It's nice to hear you say that because Chasing Amy is also one of my least favorite movies of all time. I don't even remember it, and I remember hating it and getting into arguments with friends about, about it who thought it was just the, 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 the greatest thing.
3: Well, well, He-Man, I have to say, is a big improvement over that. But I guess that may have something to do with it's not being uh, straight out of Kevin Smith's own brain.
0: Right, I mean, he licensed. He even tweeted about
3: this. He licensed it. Um, you know, he, he's
0: had to work with Mattel. I mean, these are still no. toys at the end of the day.
3: No, it's right. It's right there in the in the opening credits that it's a Mattel production. So it's right. You know, and, but I, I actually checked Amazon and I was only able to find two of the reboot, the Kevin Smith reboot toys on there. Um, so they're not ramping up the production yet. Yeah, soon. well,
0: that's probably because, like you said, the audience for this is probably Gen X dudes mostly and not children, you know. The, the original He-Man was a toy. It was a toy first, I believe, or simultaneously a toy. Um, and so now, But now it's like this. Now it's just kind like, you know, of this nostalgia piece. And the thing I find crazy about this is that they, in the opening episode, I know this is, it is just a plot point and it's not permanent, but they, they blink He-Man and Skeletor out of existence. You know, Skeletor is like one of the most hilariously memeable villains in TV history you know uh, uh, nothing nothing makes me laugh more than a good skeletor meme
3: right and then you've got five whole episodes well not whole episodes but you know you've got a good long stretch with no skeletor and frankly it's not that much fun
0: right yeah he uh, let's let's make key man without skeletor Good idea.
3: Well, and then, well, He-Man, as you said, he disappears too. So it's just these secondary characters, and we're supposed to, you know, care about their struggles, you know, and they do their best to make us care, but it's really hard to. Right.
0: Yeah, let's make Star Wars without Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader.
3: Yeah, they did that, didn't they?
0: I think so, and it wasn't that wasn't good either. Uh, All right. All right. Well, uh, Masters of the Universe, Rebel, is it called Rebel, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Revelation?
3: Revelation. And uh, we I guess they're waiting for the revelation in the next five episodes. I haven't seen anything revelatory
0: so far. All will be revealed. All right, Greg. Thank you so much for talking to me about He-Man. Neil, let, us, let, let us not mention it again.
3: <laughs> Neil, I'll explain Well,
0: I tried to avoid it as long as possible, but Adam Hirschfelder, my old college friend, has finally written a piece for Book and Film Globe. Adam is an expert and a fan of the now-canceled NBC and Netflix show Manifest, but there's a very fervent and passionate campaign to hashtag save Manifest and bring this show back. And Adam wouldn't stop talking about it on, on my Facebook feed, on his own Facebook feed, so I finally approached him to write an article and explain exactly what Manifest is, and now he and he did it. It's been very successful here on Book and Film Globe, and now Adam has joined me on the podcast to talk about Manifest.
5: Adam, hello. Great to be with you, Neil. Thank you for letting me uh, contribute to uh, you know your your great site. I've tried for a long time, as you said, and I knew you know the power of Manifest has you know special supernatural powers. So I, I'm not surprised it was about Manifest that you know let me break through your gates. Yeah, it manifested itself. So, um, <laughs> literally, you—you you, you had a calling. Yes, I, I did have a calling. Yeah, it, you know, it was interesting when I was watching this show, and you know, as I mentioned in my piece, you know, over the last eighteen months, I mean, who hasn't been watched shows? But there was just something about this show that I, it was like it took over like like time and space in my life. And it's, you know, this mm-hmm. just totally crazy show. And I just kept watching it and I couldn't figure out why. And, and maybe it was about writing your piece. Maybe maybe it was a call, calling so I could uh, write your piece. But I, I was just like obsessed with this show for no apparent reason. And my wife and even my oldest son, you know, all we did was talk about this show. More than anything we've done in 18 months. So I think, yes, we all kind of stepped up to the calling. Mine Mine turned out to be as I followed the calling. I think that's, you know, what we're supposed to do. Although in season three, there was the talk of maybe – Doing the opposite of the calling, I followed the calling and it got me on your site. So I guess it's uh, I guess it worked.
0: So I, but the question is, all right, what is the calling? What are we talking about here? Because Manifest is one of these absurd network soap opera, sci-fi, quasi-religious soap operas, a la Lost. They, they they try these shows every now and then. Most of them get canceled after one season. I don't know if you remember. there's one where like the Earth was invaded by these sea monsters. You know, there are these strange time travel shows. That yeah. It's obvious that the showrunner has no idea what they're doing. But Manifest made it to three seasons.
5: Yeah, uh, although of course it was supposed to be six seasons. Uh, The producer Jeff Rake wanted uh, six seasons out of this. Um, You know, they came out of the box pretty good on the first season, and then you see just declining ratings during its second and third season when it was just a normal show. You had to wait a week, and just like really bizarrely, uh, you know, you know, goes on Netflix and right, you know, then it gets canceled. But then during this period, like right after the cancellation or right while the cancellation is happening, it's seeing this incredible uptick on Netflix, and that's really what starts, of course, the Save Manifest campaign. Because I think in its kind of streaming form, it made it easier. It was a, you know an addictive show, a crazy show, but you could get answers and follow along really quickly, and um, it, and the addictive nature of it became you know really uh, I, I think central to the, its success in parts, right when it gets canceled from NBC. So the timing of it uh, was really kind of amusing that it gets canceled by NBC. They say, hey, I'll you know, tell Jeff Rake, you know, you want six seasons, sorry, you know, declining ratings after three. You know, it goes on Netflix and it becomes, I think, you know, it's in the top two or three of most streamed Netflix shows and probably once the summer is done, uh, one of them, probably the most streamed show on Netflix, which is just... But, totally so what is, it, what is it What is it? about? Like there's a plane crash yeah, and there's so- fire- well, we don't, we don't really know. Um, you know, it just starts off a plane. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're on a holiday down, um, I believe it's in Jamaica, and they fly back to New York. You know, I think they're supposed to fly back into Kennedy or LaGuardia, and they're trying to, you know, there's a big electrical storm uh, during the flight, and then they're supposed to fly back into the New York area. They all live in Queens, uh, and they get rerouted uh, to, I think it was Newburgh. I mean, I guess, I don't know if... You know, Newburgh, I think, is in, the, is in the lower Hudson, but it's supposed to be, you know, kind of a, you know, B-level, uh, a B-level airport, you know, not, you know, a gleaming metropolis like Newark or Kennedy. Uh, I say that out of, you know, true love for those airports. And, but uh, so they show up and then the um, uh, NSA, I believe it is, tells them, you know, first the pilots had trouble landing at this airport, and then they steer them to this other airport, and then they're told— You know, you're not supposed to be here. You're gone for, you know, you were gone for five and a half years. So the show starts with this. You learn this plane has disappeared for five and a half years. And over the three seasons, you get more and more trying to get this information of what happened to it while it was gone for five and a half years. And yeah, I mean, did they run out of drinks? Yeah, they they, they, they ran out of drinks. You know, this is, you know, get started in pre-COVID. So I think they had a lot, you know, they had more drinks and food than they do now on planes, which are now ridiculous. You can't bring your own stuff and, you know, flying is so miserable. Uh, Although the Montego Airlines, which is the plane uh, airlines that they are on, kind of seems, as I had mentioned, like Spirit Air. It doesn't seem like, you know, some classy place like United or American. I mean, it just seems like, you know, kind of like a budget airline southwest down to the, uh, uh, you know, down to Jamaica that people out of – you know, Long Island and Queens take down for, you know, quick weekends away. Seemed like a cheapo airline. But so it's gone for five and a half years, and you don't know why. And you still don't. I mean, after three seasons, we still don't know why. And the question is, what happened during this electrical storm? They disappeared. And it's all built around that. And you had asked earlier about the callings. Everybody who's on the airplane has a shared cognitive path. They all, after being missing for five and a half years, share cognitive visions and different characters on the show deal with those cognitive visions differently. There are these metaphysical cognitive visions that, you know, you know, and they're crazy. They're ridiculous. Kids are kids are dying. They themselves are dying blood out of the eyes. Like there's this horror element to the, you know, you know, kind of a silly horror element to the show um, about these callings. And I think as I had mentioned, you're supposed to follow the callings and solve some type of problem, save some type of life, and that in doing so you have followed the callings, you know, in that, you know, great, you know, religious narrative of you know serving a greater being to serve yourself, although it gets a little complicated in season three when you know the you know maybe they people should be avoiding the callings and doing the opposite. So that's kind of what the these callings are, these strange metaphysical things. That everybody on the plane has and can see more or less at the same time. But then the weird part of the show is then there's some other people. Wait, have, oh wait what's I the have, weird part of the show? <laughs> <laughs> right. The, uh, the, the, the part of the show that doesn't make sense um, is that, you know, there were people who were not on the plane who also have these cognitive visions and callings (laughs) although what they do with them is you know slightly different but so why do these other people have cognitive callings we don't know and so when season three ends you're left with you know i mean that's just one of the questions is what are these callings why do people on the plane have them why do people not on the plane have them and most of the people not on the plane who have them are nuts you know kind of these meth dealers from upstate um, who were forced into selling meth by their high school football coach, which is a kind of tangent and bizarre, but they all have callings, but they use it for eat the three of the guys are in this kind of like gang of robbers. Uh, two of the three well originally the three kind of use it for evil, but then one of the guys kind of realizes that you know maybe he should do it for good, but his soul ultimately isn't saved and all three of these guys who have these cognitive visions were forced into meth dealing by their high school coach end up dying uh, all at once. Hold up. So, so all right, we get the idea. Yep. You know, here's the
0: thing. This is the kind of show I I know that the creator Jeff Rake is on Twitter and he seems to have a plan, but this is the kind of show like lost or heroes or timeless or one of these other like super high concept network shows that have a strong comic book presence, but by the virtue of the fact that you have 22 hours to fill, just go completely off the rails. Like, you know, this is the kind of thing that maybe would be handled better in a tight six hours maximum.
5: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And if you, you know, it's interesting. I've been watching all the comments that, you know, that my piece is getting on different pages and so forth. And there's people who all watch it, you know, it was a new show. It got some attention during season one, you know, had some religious aspects. And then it starts dying in season two and season three. And people are like, it really goes off the rails, jumps the shark. You know, as they say in season two, it goes just totally, you know, gets like crazy and bananas. But, yeah, it it could be better handled in a short amount of time. But there was something different here. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's the loss, which did well. There's still this weird Metaphysical nature about the popularity of this program concentrated over the past three or four weeks that you know what's going to happen back in the real world i hate to use those that term but like if the show comes back on like will it be in a streaming form if it comes back will it be you know i can't imagine watching the show and waiting week after week which i think didn't work for the show before it's like, or will the
0: fans like yeah. you just have a collective vision of the next season? Maybe they'll figure out a way to just to stream it. You'll have a, you'll wake up you know, and you're sweating and you'll you'll have some you'll have a, you'll have advanced the plot. I don't know. It's, yes. it's, it's, it's 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 like, you know, I know that you're, you know, an observant uh, and, and and very passionate uh, uh, Jew but it seems to me that Manifest is sort of a sort of like
5: your new religion here, Adam. It, it was over certainly over the past uh, several weeks, w- w- without question. And it, it, it just like it took it took me over. And again, as I said, I, I just have no idea why I became obsessed with this show, with the characters, the storyline. It, it, it was it was like a religion. I mean, I we I, I set aside time to watch this thing, and then. You know, and then I joined these fans online, like something I've never done before. Manifest it.
0: All right. Adam Hirschfelder, uh, obsessive fan of Manifest. Hashtag save Manifest. Save Manifest. Let's have you back sometime soon. Not too soon, but (laughs) soonish. Soonish. Soonish, Neil. All right. Take it easy. Okay. Good to talk to you. Ciao. So I have been watching a show on Apple Plus TV, which I got uh, for free with my new iPhone. I'm very grateful for that, for a few reasons, but mostly because I get to watch Schmigadoon, a crazy musical comedy parody created by Cinco Paul, who is the guy who wrote the Despicable Me movies and the Horton Hears a Who adaptation and the Lorax. He's a Mormon, and he's very wholesome. His material is very wholesome, and Schmigadoon is his masterwork. And here to talk to me about Schmigadoon is Book and Film Globe film critic, Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic, and fellow Schmigadoon, and I, I am guessing musical theater lover Sarah Stewart. Sarah, hello. Hello. When I was in junior high and middle school, I used to tour around the country in the summers with this, theater troupe sponsored by our local Jewish community center in Phoenix. And we would travel around the country performing uh, homemade musicals in gyms. That is how yeah. I, that's how, that was like my summer camp, basically. That's how I spent my summer, my youthful summers. And, you know, my parents had all the Broadway cast recordings of the corny classic age of, of musicals um, like, um, you know, the, the era of Oklahoma and South Pacific and, you know, everything seemed to have Carol Burnett in it. She was in the original Once Upon a Time, and mat, uh, Once Upon a Mattress, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, Schmigga Dune is right up my alley. Maybe you have I, a, a similar background. Oh,
6: likewise, likewise. I also grew up with uh, parents, had the whole collection of all the classic musicals and uh i was also a theater kid i was in uh i grew up in uh, concord massachusetts and i i was in a kids theater group for years and years but actually actually the same theater group that spawned uh chris evans aka captain america is our most famous export uh for me it did not go that way but i certainly did spend a lot of time doing musical theater as a kid and and on through junior high and high school, uh, and, and was on a steady diet of classic musicals the whole time. So this is right up my alley.
0: Right. So here's the thing. If you don't, I mean, Schmiggenoo is funny and it's well-made, but if you don't like classic musicals, you're going to turn this thing off in the first five minutes because it is, it is a musical with a capital M. I mean, characters break out into corny songs at the drop of a hat. It's such a funny meta parody of musicals. The, the, um, the premise is that there's this um, sort of there's a couple urban couple doctors played by Cecily Strong and Keegan Michael Key, and they're they're in kind of a relationship funk. They can't really commit to marriage, or he can't commit to marriage. Uh, like that that's not an original sentiment or anything, but um, they're in a, they're in a dry spell, and they're go on some sort of hike to try to renew their love. And they stumble on a la Brigadoon, this magical land that seems to be trapped in a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. And the colors are really bright and people burst out into song at a moment's notice. And it's just delightful and hilarious.
6: It is. It is, in in, in that way that, that we love from the old musicals. But also, I thought what was really interesting, and Keegan-Michael Keegan kind of brought this up for me. Um, I don't know if you remember the, ske- the Key and peel sketch, Negro Town, um, but it, it has a similar palette uh, and sound to that, too. Uh, so it's sort of modernized, a modernized, schmaltzy, classic look.
0: You know and the thing is the show is not particularly concerned with race relations there's a uh, there's a character played by the great Kristen Chenoweth who's in charge of a group called Mothers Against the Future a classic <laughs> a, a, a classic uh musical trope of the, the 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 um the the ladies walking around the town being the moral arbiters and she's very concerned cuz Cecily Strong and Keegan-Michael Key are a mixed race couple but the town itself is full of mixed-race couples. it's very racially diverse and they I don't even there's
6: an side about colorblind casting in the first episode I think
0: yeah, it's very colorblind um the the sort of um Ron Howard from the Music man character is this little black kid who has a lisp and always is bursting into people's homes and and you know advancing the plot forward um there's there's just a lot of very funny, very clever referencing and the songs are fantastic I mean, one after another. There's I don't remember the actor's name, but the the guy who plays the Carney is just Oh such Aaron a, Veidt? I don't
6: know how to pronounce it. Aaron Veit, but he's, so. such a,
0: yeah. he's such a he's such a skilled musical theater performer and he just he delivers that sort of that sort of tortured working class Carney guy that you see in those old fashioned musicals in, in a perfect way. And he's it, a you know a beautiful voice, a dancer, he's a great dancer. It's a great
6: song the, the You Can't Tame Me song and then the uh, follow-up uh, about how oh, she's tamed him. Uh, well, and he, also
0: it also the duet he does with Cecily Strong, who, you know, Cecily Strong is not a musical theater performer. I mean, she can sing well, well but, like, because she's an actor, most actors can sing, but she's not, you know, she's not a dancer or anything. But the, he has this great duet that's sort of a, um, a, a what should you, how would you say it? It's a take off on uh, If I Were a Belle Mm-hmm. From Guys mm-hmm. and Dolls, it's kind of this jazzy, jazzy little number. Uh, that's that's a wonderful number. There's all kinds of good stuff. I mean, Alan Cumming is in it. He plays the mayor of Shmigadoon, who's like very obviously gay.
6: <laughs> mayor Menlove,
0: yes, it's it's very subtle. Yeah, very subtle. And he, he sings this ridiculous parody of of some Enchanted Evening to Cecily Strong about finding true love. And the whole the whole premise of the show is that they can't escape Shmigadoon until they find true love. It's so absurd, and the premise is delivered by Martin Short in one of the m- most absurd cameos you will ever see. And I, I, I watched it three times. It was, he, his delivery of that of that little bit was so crazy. I'm not going to reveal it's, what he is, but he's crazy. Yes, it's,
6: it's perfect, Martin Short. Perfect usage of Martin Short.
0: Yeah, brief. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. brief. I, too much of that might have been a lot. And you know, and so, the, so the thing is, so it's it's not really a show that like. Tackles issues of race, but boy, is it sharp about the the antiquated gender roles of those old musicals.
6: Yes, yes. There's a um, oh, Leslie Strong has a line uh, somewhere about how how underwritten female characters are and all of the old musicals. Uh, and and one of my favorite numbers is the um, Sound of Music homage, where she teaches a couple about reproduction in a, a do re mi. Uh,
0: parody. That must be in this week's episode that I have not watched yet.
6: Ah, ah sorry to spoiler that for you. Well, but no, so I'm look- n- now I'm looking forward. to I-
0: I'm gonna try to uh, persuade my my wife to watch it over lunch, although she. One of the
6: things I really love about a lot of the songs, though, is that they're parodies, but in a very sincere way yeah. there's there's a knowing eye uh, sort of towards them but their lyrics are essentially i mean they could kind of pass a lot of them for on any rogers and hammerstein album i think
0: brilliantly done they're brilliantly done and it's a gentle show i mean this is not a harsh satire you know it's very gentle it's very loving uh i'm trying it reminds me of well some of the, the songs are at the level of cleverness but not the level of obscenity of the old South Park musical movie, which had a similar vibe to it. Um, Broadway shows like the book of Mormon and the drowsy chaperone Avenue Q, which are musicals, but kind of are aware that they're musicals and they're making fun of musicals, but at the same Mm -hmm. time loving musicals. And it's way better than the sticky parodies you see on forbidden Broadway.
6: Mm-hmm. It's, it's lovingly done in the, in the same way that I um, really liked the uh, John Mulaney kids special on Netflix that was kind of a throwback to The Electric Company.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I liked that too. My wife made me – w- I tried to rewatch it with her. She's like, don't, don't make me watch this, please.
4: <laughs> please.
0: Now, is your
6: that- wife a musicals person? Because I tried to make my husband watch this, and he is not a musicals person, and he lasted for one episode, and now he's out.
0: I I would call her musical tolerant. I mean, we went to see In the Heights, and she she enjoyed In the Yeah. She 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 knows she gets enough of the references, you know. And it's just you have to have a. I mean, I know if you're not a musical person, you're not going to love this, but you you have to have a heart of stone not to at least appreciate it. It's so, it's such a such a delightful show. And I, I we, we we gotta cut this off, but I, we can't stop talk. We can't talk about Schmigadoon without talking about their show-stopping all-time great number, Corn Puddin'. Corn hap- Putin is a
6: classic, an instant ha- classic. Yeah, happens
0: in the first episode, and it's not really about anything in particular. It, it's just one of these sort of corny, down home numbers written by, you know, those those kinds of down home, uh, country numbers that were written by Jews sitting in an office in, on 35th Street or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it, it, it's so corny, and they deliver it with such conviction, and you know, it just to me, it's like the it's, it's the, um, it's the ultimate moment of, of And I agree. It's
6: the, it's also the best usage of, um, Keegan's kind of, uh, um, uh, straight man face. Uh, he's the guy who doesn't like musicals and he kind of looks askance at the camera throughout the whole thing. That's the one thing I worry about, uh, throughout this show that I might get old, but so far, uh, it has not for me.
0: Yeah. He, he, you know, he's not, I don't think he's the best part of the show. By any stretch, but he, you know, he can deliver a laugh line. You know, yes. he, he's very reliable. There, there's really, I don't really, there's not really a lot to criticize other than maybe that the sort of flashback scenes to reality or they fall a little flat, but they're so short. It doesn't really affect anything.
6: Yes. I agree.
0: All right. Well, Sarah, nice to talk to you and uh, everyone keep watch Schmigadoon. It, it's good for you. Even if you don't like musicals, it's, it's good vitamins.
6: Corn pudding is good, uh, good nutrition.
0: Yeah, uh, you put the corn in the pudding and the pudding in the bowl. You put the bowl in the belly because it's good for the soul. This has been another exciting edition of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Thank you so much to all my contributors. The site wouldn't exist without you literally wouldn't exist. I don't want to write all these pieces myself. My God, what do you think I am? A robot? Maybe I am a robot. Anyway, we're closing out this week with Corn Puddin' from Schmigadoon, which we just talked about. This song is an earworm that will never leave your ear. It will You will go to the grave singing Corn Puddin'. Really, there are worse fates. So thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. To Tune in next week. Bye-bye. That could be fun.
4: No. Do not. Never
3: had corn pudding.
7: Why? And it may be a
3: waste.
7: I always value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. BookandFilmGlobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on BookandFilmGlobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com.
6: Audio Hopper.